Strange Stories UK here again. This is Series 3, Episode 18, and is in fact the 80th podcast that I have broadcast. This one is called Greville Janna and the Sexual Abuse in Leicester Cover-Up. Well, Andrew Folds was a Shakespearean actor turned Labour MP for Leicester, who retired in 1997. Folds was a colourful and sometimes controversial character who amassed a large archive of papers regarding his time at Westminster. His archive was given to the library at the London School of Economics after he died in 2000. Within the archive are two documents given to Folds. One of these was dated 1992. It was a four-page leaflet published by a group which called itself Concerned Leicester Parents. This had the heading, Janna Fails to Answer Sex with Boy Evidence. The leaflet wasn't of a vague character. It was detailed as to date, location, circumstances and happenings and evidence submitted under oath. The leaflet made by concerned Leicester parents was ignored at the time as there was a rumour that there were, it was put out by the National Front it was described as unpleasant literature about Labour MP Greville Janna, circulating anonymously in Leicester. It's clearly the work of fascists who were anti-Semitic. There had been evidence of other campaigns where leaflets were put out as a campaign of misinformation. Um, nobody was exactly sure who was producing them at the time. Similar leaflets have been uh, distributed in Northern Ireland, making similar allegations against people at a boys' home, and it was said that they were produced by a fascist organisation. The other document was a 24-page booklet produced in 1995, which claimed on its cover, Is Greville Janna QC MP Above the Law? telling of how people in high places covered up for a parliamentarian paedophile. The description of the leaflet and booklet in LSE's library catalogue said that the two documents explore in forensic detail allegations of sexual abuse against a child by a colleague of Folds called Greville Janna. It was produced by parents living in Leicester frustrated at the non-action of the law against a paedophile. Greville Janner, who was later Lord Janner of Branstone, was a barrister and politician who was Member of Parliament for a Leicester constituency from 1970 to 1997, after which he was a life member of the House of Lords until his death aged 87 in December 2015. At the time of his death he was being investigated as being a paedophile, a predator and an abuser of young boys. The case divided opinion when I first heard of it uh, in June 2015, after Janna had to attend a magistrate's court to answer 22 charges being brought about by nine abuse victims. There was little doubt in most people's minds that Janna was a paedophile, but many thought that his mind had gone and as a result he would be unable to uh, defend himself in court. In what was the point of trying to trying a senile old man of 87. 
However, it was also argued that allowing the victims to put their story before court was a necessary step towards some form of justice after the scandal of an establishment cover-up led to the failure to charge Jana when credible evidence uh, was available when accusations were first made back in 1991. Then other questions were asked. It was said that double standards were being practised by the Director of Prosecutions, Public Prosecutions, the DPP. The Crown Prosecution Service Chief, Alison Saunders, said that Jana should have been charged with 22 historic sexual child sexual offences committed between 1969 and 1988. But now he was unfit to plead due to dementia. But then the media, the media argued that the CPS had pros prosecuted many other suspected paedophiles with the same illness and had been sent to prison or mental hospital. Newspaper articles criticising this decision gave lists of the names of others who had been charged with the same offence while being diagnosed with dementia. The newspapers argued that Jana was being protected and it was very convenient that the CPS finally admits that he should have been prosecuted at the time when they say he's too ill to be tried. Newspaper articles suggest that maybe Jana would tell too many secrets on others if brought to trial. On the 16th of April 2015, a few hours after the CPS announcement, the Labour Party suspended Jana from membership of the party. Lord MacDonald, the former Director of Public Prosecutions, told the Today programme on BBC Radio 4 on the 18th of April 2015 that a decision over whether to prosecute Jana should have been made by a judge in court rather than the CPS this to, be, to remove any doubt that the most recent investigation had been carried out properly. It was also pointed out that Jana had been very vocal in wanting to try Nazi war criminals who claimed dementia. Jana writing in the Jewish Chronicle in 2011 saying, I don't care how bloody old they are, they should have been dealt with years ago. No concessions to age or the time past should be made for justice when it comes to crimes of this magnitude. These words rang hypocritical now that Jana was citing his own ill health and dementia to avoid being charged for his role in cases of organised child abuse. The public anger surfaced again when it seemed that Greville Janner, who was diagnosed with dementia in 2009, had regularly been attending the House of Lords and claiming expenses, although suffering, supposedly, from dementia. He'd voted 37 times in 2013 in the House of Lords. It was reported that he attended the House of Lords 634 times since he was diagnosed with dementia and was able to claim expenses, which I'm not sure what they were in 2013, but at the present time, if you go to the House of Lords and you sign the book and you're there just for five minutes, you can claim £305 a day, plus travel expenses and use the subsidised restaurants. During 2015, the House of Lords were trying to slim down they're trying to slim down the upper chamber as there are now over 800 lords that could attend. They were asking the lords to retire in April 2015. When Jenner received his letter, he responded with a personal signed letter and it was received on April the 9th, 2015, when he asked to continue in office. 
This was reported in the Times newspaper. So it seems that six years after being diagnosed with dementia, Jana wanted to continue in a role of making laws for the country. John Mann, who was a Labour MP, who was very important in the fight for victims of sexual child abuse at the time, told the Daily Telegraph that all the documents relating to the upper chamber's contact with Jana should be made public. He said, I don't see how you can sign a document relating to a membership of the House of Lords if you have dementia. John Mann had compiled a dossier giving the names of 12 former ministers who he said were definitely child abusers. He gave those to the Midland Inquiry, an inquiry into sexual abuse that collapsed in early 2016 as a result of false accusations being made against innocent people. A cross-party letter coordinated by Simon Danzuk, a Labour politician, signed by 11 politicians from seven parties, was published in the press. The signatories asserted that as long as justice is not seen to be done and the greater public interest is not served, the public will see attempts to investigate establishment figures involved in historic child abuse as a whitewash, as clearly the public thought Jenner was getting away with child abuse and he was a powerful politician. Lord Greville Janner's parliamentary website, at the time of the announcement by Saunders in April 2015, saying that it was not in the public interest to prosecute him, said the website said that, he was, that Greville Janner was holding the following positions. He was Vice President for the Association of Jewish Youth. He was Vice President of the Jewish Leadership Council. He was President of the Association of Jewish Ex-Servicemen and Women. He was on the Advisory Board for Community Security Trust. He was the Vice President of the World Jewish Congress. He was the Chairman of the Holocaust Educational Trust. And he was the Director of the United Jewish Israel Appeal. Lord Janner was also previously Chairman of the British Board of Jewish Deputies when many of these offences were committed and subsequently investigated. It's worth remembering that when the Jimmy Savile scandal broke a couple of years before the Janner announcement, the BBC was correctly admonished for its silence over Savile. It was forced to open an inquiry and several people were sacked. But not one of the organisations that Janner was working for made a statement. How could they had, have had Lord Janner in these positions and not even notice his dementia or ability to carry out his responsibilities that he carried? It was suggested that the reason that they didn't notice that Janna had dementia was because he didn't have dementia. And given that Janna was appearing in the House of Lords 15 times in the month before the police turned up, it can only be assumed that his dementia wasn't generally very visible. Janna's parliamentary website was taken down after the announcement that his dementia had meant that he dodged child sexual abuse charges. The Director of Public Prosecutions, Alison Saunders, spoke of her deep regret as she announced that Lord Janet would not face trial. She also ruled that he should have been charged three times before, in 1991, 2002 and 2007, but was not. It was probable that Lord Janet was the beneficiary of a wholesale cover-up. It was then reported that the legal adviser to Alison Saunders was called Neil Moore, was a barrister in the same legal chambers, 23 Essex Street, London, 
as Daniel Janner, who was the son of Lord Grenville Janner and a fierce protector of his father. Senior police officers who were investigating the allegations of child abuse against Janner raised concerns over Neil Moore's involvement in the decision not to proceed with the trial of Janner. The DPP Alison Saunders argued that no case can be compared to another as each brings its own very different circumstances and is so judged on its own facts and merits. It looked like a feeble excuse. It was argued that Janna had four different medical experts to say he was unfit to plead and there was no treatment for his diagnosed dementia. It's a pity for those others that were charged with child abuse and put in prison or mental hospital that they were unable to afford medical opinions to tell a similar story to Janna. I suppose if you ask enough doctors you will get the answers you want to hear. The furious backlash against the DPP Alison Saunders continued over her decision to spare Janna from court and she faced growing calls to stand down. Campaigners, police chiefs and MPs accused her of ignoring the rights of victims and failing to clear the stench of an establishment cover-up that lingered over the case. Saunders had been criticised over previous decisions over other high-profile cases, including the first disastrous attempts for a conviction for female genital mutilation and also attempts to pursue journalists. In 2008, Saunders stood down from her role after it was announced that she would not be reappointed for a second term. The Daily Telegraph also reported in April 2018 that crime statistics tracking burglary, violent crime and shoplifting all rose significantly under Saunders' tenure ever since she became the first Director of Public Prosecutions. On the 29th of December 2018, the Telegraph reported that Alison Saunders will be the first former head of the Crown Prosecution Service not to receive a senior honour after her tenure was marked by a series of scandals. All of her, previous, all of her predecessors became knights or a dame either during their tenure or immediately after their departure. A week after she stood down, damages were paid to those wrongly arrested over unfounded sex charges. So it seemed that the strong public opinion against the decision not to proceed with the trial in the Janna case did force the issue and a compromise was reached. Janna will still be investigated as being a paedophile and abuser of young boys. Many argued that allowing the victims to put their story before the courts being a necessary step towards some form of justice after the scandal of establishment cover-up led to the failure to charge Janna when credible accusations were first made back in 1991. On the 29th of June 2015, it was reported that the decision of the Director of Public Prosecutions not to pr prosecute Janna had been overturned by David Perry, the QC appointed to review the Saunders decision. A judge was now to decide if Janna was fit to stand a criminal trial. The case was considered at Westminster Magistrates Court on the 7th of August 2015. Janna stalled several times and had to be threatened with arrest before he actually attended. The court ruled that Janna must attend the preliminary hearing, if only briefly. Janna was in court for less than a minute on the 14th of August to identify himself. The next meeting was on the Old Bailey on the 1st of September, but Janna was not required to appear. 
An independent review ruled in favour of a rare form of hearing, known as a trial of the facts, aimed at establishing whether the offence was committed, as charged, but without the possibility of a conviction. There are only three possible outcomes of a trial of the facts. They are a hospital order, a supervision order, or an absolute discharge. The judge can only make a finding that the defendant did the particular physical act. There can be no verdict of guilty. Such a trial took place in 2015 in the case of former Luton South MP Margaret Moran, who was accused of falsely claiming more than £53,000 in parliamentary expenses. She was given a two-year supervision order. In the Janet case, the process would involve the alleged victims giving evidence. A trial of the facts would most likely be strenuously opposed by Janet's legal team, who would argue that it was an abuse of the court process to subject him to any sort of trial where there had been so much adverse pre-trial publicity. Roger Bannister, the Assistant Chief Constable of Leicestershire, argued that there is credible evidence that this man carried out, this man Janna, carried out some of the most serious sex crimes imaginable over three decades against children who were highly vulnerable and the majority of whom were in care. Janna would have been charged had he been fit to stand trial with 16 indecent assaults on males under 16, six counts of buggery on male minors at dates between 1969 and 1988. He had been investigated by the police three times over more than 20 years, this following allegations, but on each occasion there had been a decision not to prosecute him. The evidential test was also passed in the three previous investigations, but the CPS, the Crown Prosecution Service, failed to charge the Labour peer, apparently after pressure from senior sources, presumably at Westminster. So, in short, Janna had been protected by an establishment cover-up. Janna died on the 19th of December 2015, and criminal proceedings against him ended with his death. Old Bailey judge, Mr Justice Openshaw, said in January 2016, Well, there's nothing more to be said. That's the end of proceedings. Now the defendant is dead. List Duke's solicitor for six of Janna's alleged abuse victims said that claims against the estate would be made in the civil courts. However, in March 2017, three of the defendants dropped their civil suits, followed by six more in May, signalling an end to the civil actions against his estate. In an interview with the Times newspaper, the Janna family declared, Our father's reputation as a man who devoted his life to good has been restored. His son Daniel Janna stated, These false accusers have dropped their claim because they risk being cross-examined. Daniel's son Daniel seems to ignore the fact that by the 15th of January 2016, further allegations of abuse were made by 12 former residents of children's homes. Greville Janna, Janna had regularly visited homes in Leicestershire in the 70s and 80s. The BBC had traced and interviewed dozens of men and women who lived at Leicestershire children's homes in that period. It had also spoken to council officials, social workers, police officers and journalists involved in the Frank Beck investigations, which we will examine shortly. Solicitors were representing at least 20 men and one woman, including 12 residents of a children's homes, who said that Jan had abused them. Police said they had information from 25 alleged victims. 
The report of the retired High Court judge, Sir Richard Hendricks, concerning the earlier investigations of allegations made against Janna, was published in January 2016. The CPS and the Leicestershire Police were again criticised in this independent report, and Hendricks concluded that there had been sufficient evidence to make a probable successful prosecution of Janna in 1991, 2002 and 2007. So again, someone saying that there was sufficient evidence to produce, uh, to convict, or sorry, to charge Janna with these cases. For example, in 1991, the police had not checked if Janna had shared a hotel room with a 14-year-old boy and had only made extremely limited checks at the children's home where he lived. It was found two decades later that the child had attended a wedding with the Janna family. Although the Janna family had denied this, film footage existed to show that he was actually at the wedding with Janna. The boy's name was Paul Winston. The 2002 investigation was connected with allegations of historical abuse at the children's home in which a former resident called Hamish Bailey made accusations against Janna. The failure to forward Bailey's statement to the CPS for charging advice was remarkable, Hendricks wrote. It was suggested that the Leicestershire Police should have passed the file about the 2002 investigations onto the CPS. And Hendricks said that this should be investigated by the IPCC, Police Complaints. The allegations against Janna were denied by his family and had undermined what had been a distinguished career by Janna, not only as a politician, but at least as equally important to him for decades as a leading member of Britain's Jewish community. Janna had the ear of influential politicians in Israel, which made him a person of interest to social security services. Janna was also close to the governments of India, Egypt and Jordan. He was one of the most influential Jews living in the UK, which made him a very important person in international relations. Janna's family had stood by him and issued various statements and gave some interviews, some of which can be viewed on YouTube. Their position is very understandable, but their arguments are not very convincing when they say that Janna was naive and taken advantage of by unscrupulous people that Jan had operated an open house policy where anyone was welcome in his home. The family argued that the reason that so many people made allegations is due to the bandwagon effect by people copying others and making allegations. There does not seem to be any understanding given to those who were brave enough to say that Jan had allegedly done to them when they were younger. The Jana family seems to shut themselves off from any criticism of their father. Greville Jana had been succeed, had succeeded his father, Barnet Janner, to what had almost become the family constituency in the suburbs of Leicester, which was held successively by father and son for more than 50 years for the Labour Party. The story went that Barnet Janner's late decision to stand down so soon before the 1970 general election that the vote Janner posters had already been printed, and Barnet suggested that his son might replace him to save reprinting costs. Even after the allegations, Janet went on to hold Leicester North West, then under redrawn boundaries, Leicester West, as Labour MP for 27 years. Although Janet never actually owned a property in Leicester, he preferred to be based in either London or Bournemouth. Janet, whose family originated in Lithuania, had a comfortable middle-class upbringing. He was evacuated to Canada during World War II before returning to attend Cambridge University and subsequently 
subsequently to become a barrister. Jenna married Myra in 1955. They had a son, Daniel, a Queen's Counsel who was briefly a Labour candidate but later joined the Tories, and two daughters, Laura, a rabbi of the Jewish Reform Movement and a regular broadcaster, and Marion, director of the social justice charity Bright. Jenna never became a government minister, rumours circulating privately in parliamentary circles headed off by threats of legal action probably put paid to this. He chaired a number of all-party international friendship groups and was a long-time member of the Select Committee on Employment. Jenna had the reputation of being a self-publicist. He liked being the centre of attention. He was short, dapper in dress and manner, and inclined to waspishness. Jenna claimed the authorship of 66 books, many with his name in the title mainly standard textbooks concerned with employment and industrial relations law, but also manuals on public speaking and presidential, um, presenta- presentational skills for would-be MPs, businessmen and trade unionists. He was a life member of the National Union of Journalists, a long-time director of the Jewish Chronicle, and for many years a, mam- a member of the Magic Circle, which was said to be a device which he used to capture the interests of children by performing magic tricks. He once appeared at BBC Radio Leicester unannounced, demanding to be interviewed. When told there was no journalists available to ask him questions, he simply asserted that he would interview himself and the questions could be edited out and re-voiced by a staff reporter later, which was done. One of the few subsequent forays into the public eye came in 2002, when Yuri Geller, a friend, arranged for him to accompany Michael Jackson, the singer, on a tour of Parliament. The trio dropped in on a party for Labour MP Paul Botang, and Jackson agreed to sing Happy Birthday, this story making the newspapers with uh, the corresponding photographs. Allegations against Jana surfaced as a result of the 1991 trial of Frank Beck, who rang children's homes in Leicester. The trial started on the 16th of September 1991, and lasted for 11 weeks. Frank Beck was born in Salisbury on the 19th of July 1942 and was employed by Leicester County Council as a middle manager of several children's homes between 1973 and 1986. This included the Beaches Children's Home. He was a subject of a large investigation into institutional child abuse between 18, so I beg about 1989 and 1991. Frank Beck was a tough, strong ex-Marine who retrained as a social worker and was considered to have great charisma, having a no-nonsense approach with troubled children, as well as some very odd methods such as his regression theory, whereby he infantilised children, treating them like infants if they misbehaved, which involved a culture of cuddling and lots of close contact. Beck's form of regression therapy deliberately provoked children to get them to lose control and release their feelings. Then they were held down and restrained until they gave in. Children were literally bullied into submission. A towel tightened around their neck until breathing was cut off. Regression therapy was an ideal cover. It used overwhelming force to torture children and rape children whilst being said to produce good results. Frank Beck was said to produce good results with children. Beck handpicked his own team to work with the children, 
and they were expected to obey Beck's orders without uh, question. Beck was also a Liberal Party councillor. During the early 1980s, Beck's methods were questioned after complaints and their allegations of abuse. Beck was eventually suspended after complaints from two male members of staff who said that they had been sexually abused by Beck. One of these was a social worker, a Mr K, whose name was redacted. He was 28 years of age when he started work with Beck, and he said the meetings with Beck soon turned into homosexual sex sessions. Sessions on personal growth therapy became dominated by questions about sexuality. It was hugging, fondling, and ended up in a state of undress. Then the sessions began to include masturbation and oral sex. Mr. K said that Beck used threats and physical assault to manipulate staff, re, uh, staff and residents. Back, Beck left the employment of Leicester County Council in March 1986. The police did not seem interested in the allegations that were being made and they did not start to probe the background of Frank Beck until 1989 when they started collecting their historical abuse statements from 400 children, ultimately leading, leading to the trial in 1991. This was before the days of disclosure, and Beck went to work for an agency supplying staff to social services in London. Beck was finally arrested at his home in Brownstone, Leicester, in 1989. At the trial, Beck was found guilty of sexual abuse and assault against more than 100 children in his care. Sittings were held in private, supposedly to protect third parties, and all, not all the evidence was released to the public. The judge, Justice Jewett, made sure that the names of men suspected of having homosexual relationships with the boy residents were not named in court. There were claims that photographs of the boys in the homes were sent out to paedophiles, seemingly to advertise that they, who they had staying in the homes. Amongst the allegations against Beck, was that he killed a 13-year-old boy called Simon O'Donnell by strangulation while he was being abused. A subsequent inquest ruled that the death was due to suicide, but there were doubts over the decision of the inquest. Simon's body was found hanging from a light fitting in the gents' toilets at the GEC Sports Club at Whetstone on the 4th of October 1977. Simon had been admitted to the Ratcliffe Children's Home after no place could be found for him in a psychiatric unit. Some people in care with him believe the method of death with a towel around his neck was similar to that that Beck used for restraining and provoking attacks gone wrong. Mike Lindsay was a children's rights officer for Leicestershire some years later and he believed that the O'Donnell case should be reopened. Peter Baston said that he saw Beck and Fiedemann taking out something in a blanket and he did not believe that Simon, who was afraid of the dark, would break into a building at night to commit suicide. Peter Baston, who claimed that he saw Beck take something out in a blanket that the night Simon was found dead, he and his sister were sexually abused by their stepfather, Fred Quinn. Their mother was a prostitute. He was placed in council care at Westcoats, Leicestershire. Age 14, he indecently assaulted a 10-year-old boy and was referred to Beck at the Poplar's Children's Home in Market Harbour. Baston spoke at High Court in 1998 of his abuse, particularly by Fiedemann, as well as Beck. He told of the methods of restraint of belts and towels around his neck, which he eventually found sexually exciting. When just 18, Baston himself murdered a 10-year-old boy, Aslam Ibrahim, 
in May 1978. Baston fastened a towel around his neck whilst he raped the boy. This was a copy of the techniques used on him. Baston was sentenced to life for the murder of uh, Aslim in March 1979. He gave no explanation or mitigation, and he would not properly brief his solicitor, and for years he would only speak to Beck. Later he said that he should have pleaded guilty to manslaughter on grounds of diminished responsibility. Another case of an abused boy was Barry Samuels, who became well known in the criminal world of Leicester, the inner city area of Highfields in particular. Samuels had been abused by Beck in, when in his care at Ratcliffe Road. Samuels went on to beat up his wife and then hit his baby son, who later died. He was charged with the murder of his son. Samuels told the police about his own abuse, but refused to make a formal statement, as it would have humiliated him. He hanged himself in prison just before his trial. The publicity about sexual abuse in the Leicester, Leicester children's homes focused on Frank Beck, and he was convicted of 17 charges of sexual and physical abuse, including rape, buggery, indecent assault and assault. He received five life sentences. It said that there was a systematic sexual abuse and terrifying violence, and there seemed to be no safeguards and no record-keeping. However, it was suggested that the true story of child abuse in Leicestershire was far more far-reaching than that of the activities of Frank Beck, and the questions were asked who else was involved in the paedophile network. It seemed that Beck was deflecting attention from others by soaking up all the blame for child abuse. During the trial, when a witness was about to name a visitor who allegedly abused a child in the home, Justice Edwin Jowett stepped in. Our name's relevant, he said. Allegations are made, not necessarily by people who know, and repeated second-hand against people who are, they are not here to defend themselves. Jenner was named in the Beck trial. An abused child, later named as Paul Winston, who was aged about 30 at the time of the trial, said that he had a two-year relationship with Jana, which started when he was 13 years of age. On one occasion, he accompanied Jana on a two-week lecture tour of Scotland. Winston said that he stole money from Jana's wallet as a way of getting back at him. Another witness was a social worker who said that the boys at the home admitted being rent boys and boasted about having friends in high places. During the trial, Frank Beck said that Jana had abused Winston at the Beecher's children's home after having a relationship with him for two years. Winston was an orphan. Jana had spent time with the boy overnight at the Holiday Inn in Leicester. Beck said that he never included the allegation in his original police statement as he did not want to drag Mr Jana into court. But the police knew about the allegations. One police officer told of how he felt uncomfortable when visiting the beaches on a matter and finding Jana sitting in the chair with a boy sat on the arm of the chair. The officer said that the situation just didn't feel right. It was thought that Jana had befriended Beck in order to access children at the home. Beck's defence lawyer, in his summing up, argued that Frank Beck was trying to stop the abuse of children, saying that it was Jana who was abusing the children. Jana was later to claim that Beck was trying to deflect blame from himself, although there is some evidence that Beck and Jenna did have a falling out, and at times Beck did not allow Jenna at the house. There was some evidence also that Frank Beck had been an informant for MI5, but had been abandoned by them. A letter was produced in court, written by Jenna to Paul Winston, the 13-year-old orphan boy, after they allegedly slept with each other. 
The letter was dated on the 7th of July 1973. Winston was giving evidence at the trial and said that he was raped by Janna. Winston said that he wrote to Janna after he became married and became a father, hoping that Janna would help him find employment. After Beck had been convicted and other abused victims came forward claiming that Janna had regularly abused them when he visited the children's home. And Mr Bailey said that when he was in care age 15 for rebellious behaviour, he said that he met Janna in 1983 when he was playing arcade games at Leicester Forest East Service Station on the M1 motorway. Janna gave him some coins so he could continue playing. He met with Janna about seven times at the service station. Janna sometimes suggested that they go to a hotel for a steak and whiskey. During a game of hide-and-seek at Bradgate Park, Bailey said that he was abused by Janna. Indecent touching behind a gorse book is how he explained it. Bailey said that he suspected that Frank Beck had told Janna where to find him. He also said that he had no idea who Janna was until he saw his photograph in a newspaper some years later. Shortly after Beck's trial, the Director of Public Prosecutions, who was a, Joy a Jewish lawyer named Annan Green, let it be known that for lack of evidence, Janna would not be prosecuted, would not be charged. In the House of Commons, Janna denied the claims of abuse. He vehemently denounced the allegations as an attempt to frame him, and he received all party support, including that of Labour Party's then leader, Neil Kinnock. Janna unsuccessfully pressed the Conservative government to amend the law of contempt of court to prevent the media reporting disgraceful, contemptible and totally untrue allegations made under the cover of legal privilege. It was an, uh, an irony that Janna used the same principle of privilege to defend himself and accuse Paul Winston and others that Janna had accused other people of misusing against him. Paul Winston was named in Parliament and the media, but he had no opportunity to defend himself against the statements made by Janna in the House of Commons. The CPS decided not to take any action against Janna after the House of Commons joined ranks to support him and gave him a standing ovation after a speech when Janna said that there wasn't a shred of truth in the allegations against him. Janna said it was true that he knew Paul Winston as a deprived youngster living in a Leicestershire children's home. My family and I had tried unsuccessfully to help him. Soon after, he was placed into a home run by Beck, and after 15 years of Beck's influence, and after Janna claimed that to have refused to provide Beck with a reference, Beck and Winston combined to make disgraceful and totally untrue allegations of criminal conduct against me, against him, Janna. Many who spoke in defence of the child abuser were MPs with constituencies around the Leicester area. These MPs should, of course, been defending the innocent children being abused by this man in children's homes where sexual abuse was routine. In retrospect, they may cringe, well, they must cringe in embarrassment of what they said in defence of Janna. David Ashby was a Tory Leicester MP. He argued that Janna had been treated unfairly and people such as him in the public eye should be protected by having their names withheld when protecting their good name in court. Ashby claimed that people making accusations against Janna were trying to blackmail the establishment. Ashby himself, coming under public scrutiny some years later, for an alleged homosexual affair after his wife said that he had left her for a man. Mr Keith Vaz, MP for Leicester East, he said that Janna was a member of a family who was intertwined with the history of Leicester. 
and he was the victim of cowardly and wickedly attacks. Vaz called for a change in the law to protect the innocent and asking for a private member's bill to do it as soon as possible. Such a law change would have suited Vaz, a notorious MP who could be described as the most corrupt MP in the UK in recent years. It's difficult to know where to start with his list of indiscretions, making false allegations against the police, bullying his staff, accepting bribes, using male prostitutes and supplying them with cocaine, various corrupt business deals. Such was the world of Mr Vaz, who was later kicked out of the Commons. Alex Carlyle, he was an MP for Montgomery. He gave a speech to the House extolling the wonderful virtues of Janna and explaining how those that made allegations against him had trodden in the mire of corruption too easily and become corrupt to the care corrupt to the core, I beg your pardon, and now fail to recognise the difference between what is good and what is bad. They fail to re- recognise the difference between what is honourable and what is corrupt. In hindsight, it could be claimed that Alex Carlyle was referring to himself. In a 2015 article in the Guardian newspaper by Jay Rayner about an establishment cover-up of Janna's child rapes and those who defended him after the Beck case, He said that Lord Alex Carlyle was amazingly unobservant. Carlyle should have known Janna well. They were both MPs. They were both Queen's Council. They were both members of the Friends of Israel. They were both UK lawyers for Israel. They were both regulars on the same parliamentary committees, etc, etc. Both left the House of Commons and joined the House of Lords at the same time. But Carlyle never picked up on Janna's secret life. Interestingly, he also didn't pick up on the secret life of Cyril Smith, the child rapist and Liberal MP who he shared a House of Commons office with for many years. Carlyle's mistress and eventual wife was a senior legal advisor to the Director of Public Prosecutions. As Jay Rayner says, Westminster is a very cosy world. Maybe Carlyle has things to hide, as he agrees to everything the security services tell him to do. He agreed to 42-day detentions without charge and secret courts hearing intelligent evidence that the defence are not allowed to see. Remember that Carlyle is a liberal politician. As Rayner says, Carlyle is protecting the public, but he's even better at protecting his own friends. And one also wonders what MI5 have on him to agree to draconian demands against human freedoms. After the trial of Frank Beck and Peter James in November 1991, the Secretary of State for Health, William Moldegrave, announced the establishment of two inquiries, the the Kirkwood and the Warner inquiries. The Warner inquiry was published in 1992, and it reported that powerful people in targeted children's homes served as a supply line for paedophiles. The report was largely ignored, to the extent that 20 years later, Theresa May, the Home Secretary, announced that a national inquiry into how the authorities may have ignored child abuse at Westminster was announced. Questions were also asked, but without an answer, to Mark Sedwell, the Home Office Permanent Secretary, over the loss of 114 potentially relevant files on child abuse dating back to the 1980s. It was suspected by many that these were taken by the security services, MI5, MI6 and Special Branch, to use as a lever to control those people implicated as a form of blackmail, to do as the social uh, security services wanted, 
people such as possibly Janna, who would supply information or vote in the way the security forces wanted, otherwise information would be leaked to destroy their careers and good name. Janna was an important politician for the security services, as he had good links with political leaders in India, Egypt and Jordan, as well as Israel. Warner, a director of social services in Kent in the 1980s, said insufficient action was taken to deal with child abuse in the 1980s because there was an air of disbelief in the public mind. The public at that time still had an air of deference about them, about people in authority. It was commonly thought that institutions such as Westminster and the law, that there were a small percentage of paedophiles and a slightly larger percentage of people who knew about them, but they felt that in terms of their own self-interest and self-preservation, and for party political reasons, it was safer for them to cover it up rather than to deal with it. The Kirkwood, inqu uh, the Kirkwood Inquiry was published in February 1993. This was an inquiry to investigate all aspects of the management of children's homes in Leicestershire County Council between 1973 and 1986. The children's homes involved with Beck were Ratcliffe Road, Leicester, the Poplars at Margaret Market Harborough, and the Beaches at Leicester Forest East. Other homes at the time were the Rose Hill, Market Harborough, Polebrook House, the Woodlands, the Holt, Netherhall Road, Dunblame Avenue, Westcoats Drive and Glenparver. Almost all the witnesses had attended voluntarily, while the inquiry had been undertaken in private. The report had always been intended to be public, so where it was not already given public knowledge, children and adults who had been victims were given anonymity uh, in, in the report. The report was concerned not with the allegations, but with the ways which the Social Services Department had come to employ the various people, including Frank Beck. The inquiry can be seen as something as a whitewash. It only skimmed the surface of allegations, and it was hampered by so many files disappearing from County Hall and the children's homes. Information available via the uh, NSPCC helplines were never passed to the inquiry, or the council, or the police, due to confidentiality issues. Children that had been in care in the home said that they had been taken to Beck's home and had been introduced to other abusers who took them away for evenings and even to Leicester hotels for overnight stays. However, the police were not interested in prosecuting if there was going to be evidential problems. Police had to rely on pocket money books to even tell who was at the home at the time. The council records were so poor. Janet was called to give evidence at the inquiry and was proved to have lied to it. Janna denied that he'd ever known Frank Beck, although a later inquiry showed that Janna and Beck knew each other well, and Janna was a regular visitor to the children's homes run by Beck. Former police officers had reported seeing Janna at the homes. The Kirkwood report said that there was no proof of, uh, or of an existence of a paedophile ring against former residential staff. However, there was very little effort to investigate any links between paedophiles or links between Beck and the police or the Freemasons, although there were references in the evidence heard in the inquiry implicating police and Freemasons. Mr Kirkwood did note that there was an alarming high number of child sexual abusers working in Leicestershire's children's homes. It was later suggested that Leicester was a county that offered opportunities for paedophiles and they were attracted to move there for that reason. 
Cook would only concern himself with the contacts at work, and certainly missed contacts with other paedophiles. He did not investigate the possibility of a paedophile network operating in Leicester, although this is what many people suspected, as shown by the information sent to the MP Folds at the start of this podcast. Paedophiles are devious and wily, and Kirkwood was not trying hard enough to find them, or preferring not to. Probably the biggest point to take away is that Frank Beck was far from the lone paedophile he was made out to be by the Kirkwood report. Child abuse was rife in children's homes in Leicestershire at that time. Leicester County Council had promised to deal sympathetically with the victims, none of who, by the way, were asked to give evidence at the Kirkwood inquiry, but Leicestershire County Council's insurance company had different ideas. They thought that they had a long-term interest in defending the claims, worried about any liabilities they may face if damages were given to the victims. They instructed the defence of any allegations known as a waterfall defence, which argued that Beck and his staff, one, did not, in, uh, did not abuse children, number two, if they had, it was not the council's responsibility, if they were responsible, they were not negligent as any such actions were unauthorised, four, if they were negligent, the actions were not the cause of the claimant's later problems, Five, if they were, they were not the whole cause. And six, it was too late to claim now anyway. There were many failings that were highlighted in the Kirkwood report. A child who may have complained that he would not believed either by the social worker or by the police, the children were afraid to say anything. They were afraid to say that they'd been hit for fear of worse. Anyone suspected of misbehaviour at the children's homes at that time were not suspended but carried on in their role and could or would manipulate the accusations. Nearly all staff in the homes of which Frank Beck was an officer in charge were young single people introduced by Frank Beck. Early warnings of problems were ignored, even when they came from reliable sources. Record-taking was very poor, and so on. Frank Beck was supplied references from county without mentioning his suspension or resignation. It was damning for Leicester County Council, who seemed to ignore any aspects of, of a paedophile network. It also showed that it was only adults complaining of homosexual advances from Frank Beck that got him removed from his post in 1986. The children, or the children's word, seemed to make no difference whatsoever. The report continued that although there was speculation that Freemasons' activity had influenced uh, care at the homes, it was concluded that there was no evidence of this, just as there was no evidence for a paedophile ring, and it was cheerfully announced that there was reasonable explanations for the deaths of various children, and there was no evidence of a systematic disposal of records other than a lack of policy regarding their attention. The report concludes by pointing out that with one exception, all those abused children in Leicestershire would have been given all of those who had abused children in Leicestershire would have been given a clean bill of health by any criminal records bureau check if such a check system had been in operation at the time. In a parallel report commissioned by the Police Complaints Authority in early January 1992, the Chief Constable of Leicestershire announced that an inquiry had been set up under the orders of the IPCC to look into matters regarding police conduct arising from the events leading to the trial of Beck. 
There were allegations of incompetence, negligence and prejudice in dealing with Beck by the police, influenced by Freemasonry and a paedophile network. This was to be carried out by Chief Superintendent Foster of the the West Mercia Force, known as the Foster Report. The IPCC police complaint inquiries are usually just a whitewash for the police, but this one proved that the Leicestershire police were also negligent in failing to act on complaints of abuse, which they were receiving as early as 1973. The report also referenced the growing concern from the public and from knowledgeable child protection specialists that many politicians over the years had been paedophiles and had been covered up by the police and politicians and the mainstream press. But in in defence of the police, it was later claimed by Derbyshire Chief Constable Mick Creedon, who was serving as a detective constable in the Leicestershire Force when the allegations were being investigated against Janna, in 1989, that the police were blocked from investigating child abuse claims. Creedon said that he was ordered not to investigate Lord Janner. He was forbidden from arresting the politician or searching his home, despite credible evidence that warranted further investigation. Creedon said the message was passed on by a superintendent, but he believed that it came from higher up. The decision was clear. He would be interviewed by appointment only. There would not be a search of his home. There would not be a search of his constituency office or his office in the Commons. Although the Foster Report acknowledged that there was something amiss with the police investigation into Beck and the abuse into the children's homes and the statement given by Chief Constable Creedon that the police were told to back off, there doesn't seem to be any investigation into who gave the order. I would have thought there would have been sufficient evidence to begin an investigation into the offence of perverting the course of justice or even a conspiracy to uh, commit an offence. I think that Creedon should name the person who clearly abused the position of power they held over Creedon back in 1989. But I assume that if they did search back, it would only come to the security services and then everything would clam up on grounds of uh, security of the nation. Another detective wanting to investigate Janna but was warned off was David Swift Rollinson. He told her allegations against Greville Jenner from three alleged victims who described the horrendous child abuse by the former Leicester MP. Mr Swift Rollinson said his team needed to arrest Lord Jenner to search for evidence and give the peer a chance to respond. However, he said that the decision not to allow that, following his own 2006 inquiry, was staggering, bewildering and disappointing. I pushed and pushed and pushed, he added. He said he even drafted a letter inviting Lord Janner, the Leicester MP, between 1970 and 1997 for a voluntary interview, but he was not allowed to send it. The former detective said that the Freemasonry was rife in Leicestershire Police Force at that time. There was another report on this subject by uh, a Mr B. Newell. He was the author of the 1990 report commissioned by the Social Services Department who concluded that there had been growing concern from the public and from knowledgeable child protection specialists that many politicians over the years had been paedophiles and had been covered up by the police and politicians and the mainstream press. One of those who were thought to be party to concealing the paedophile network connection with children's homes and a possible link with police corruption was Ian Henning, a former Metropolitan Police officer who retired on ill health due to corruption allegations. 
He was now working for the law firm Green de Sar. Henning was banned from all Leicestershire police stations after officers accused him of attempting to pervert the course of justice. Another suspected person was Bernard Greaves. He was a Liberal on the National Executive for a while. He was an active gay rights supporter, and it was him who warned Cyril Smith, the then Liberal chief whip of Jeremy Thorpe's private life, and the risk to the party. Greaves warned work to keep the party's name out of the papers. Frank Beck died in May 1994 as a result of a heart attack while playing sport. He was waiting for his appeal case to be heard. At his appeal, the evidence regarding Janna would again be examined, so it was convenient for Janna that Beck's appeal was cancelled. There was speculation that Beck had been killed. Various ideas were put forward as to why he was murdered, one suggestion being that he knew the secrets of high-ranking paedophiles, another being that prisoners knew he was a paedophile and had been putting amphetamine in his food over a period of time in order to cause a heart attack. After the publication of the Kirkwood and Warner reports, a number of people made contact with a charity called Survivors UK. This charity was formed in 1986 for male victims of sexual abuse. The organiser, Nigel O'Mara, said that he'd received a number of calls from the Leicestershire area alleging that Jana had abused them. Nigel O'Mara was someone with a background and involvement as a campaigner in the area of child abuse. He himself had been abused in three out of the four homes which he had been placed as a child. O'Mara and the charity took place in a radio documentary, The Cook Report, in 1993, which named Janna and Cyril Smith as abusers of children. The programme was never broadcast, and O'Mara was later beaten up in his own home and told to stop the charity if he knew what was good for him. O'Mara was terrified and fled abroad for a period. Nigel O'Mara later ran the East Midlands Survivors Hostel in Nottingham for survivors of abuse. O'Mara's life having been dominated in the work that he's done in support of others who have been abused and counselling that uh, he provided for them. It was thought that Beck was at the centre of the paedophile ring which involved pornography and snuff films. Amongst the staff under Beck was Colin Fiddeman. Beck recruited him as a 22-year-old at the Ratcliffe Children's Home in 1973. Fiddeman had a long-standing gay relationship with Beck, although he was married with children and having a relationship with other boys. Fiddeman was given bail in May 1990, before police realised the seriousness of his crimes. Fiddeman was a sadist, and he absconded going to Europe. He eventually committed suicide on the January the 6th, 1991, in Amsterdam. Fiddeman also worked as a child protection officer for the NSPCC and a social worker for Warwickshire. He also worked at Northamptonshire Highfields Children's Home, which also employed Beck and Lincolnshire. Lincolnshire said they carried out an inquiry into Fiddeman and found no wrongdoing. At least 200 children were abused by Beck and Fiddeman. Four went on to commit murders. Other of the children that were abused became rapists, arsonists and other crimes. Others died of drug overdoses and AIDS-related diseases. They spread much misery. Also charged alongside Beck were Peter Jays, aged 42, of Chatham, Kent, charged with three offences of physical and sexual abuse, and George Lincoln, aged 39, of Sudbury, Suffolk, charged with buggery. Both were former social workers who worked with Beck. 
Ken Scott was employed as a permanent officer in charge at Rosehill Children's Home, Market Harborough. Beck gave him the job. For seven years, Scott abused boys in his care from age eight upwards. He gave them money for videoing them. On the 29th of July 1985, Scott was arrested on a charge of indecency with a teenage boy. The boy had broken into Scott's house and stole a video recorder, which was found by police to contain a video of sexual activity between Scott and various boys. A search of his home revealed a suitcase of pornographic books. In February 1986, he was sentenced to eight years in prison on five charges. After Scott's conviction, Leicestershire County Council closed the Rose Hill home. They carried out a secret inquiry into why Scott was employed, and the results were secretly reported a year later to the Social Services Committee. They had never been revealed, and the Kirkwood inquiry did not refer to them. Ron Bloxham was a deputy officer in charge of Camden Road Children's Home in Bronstone, near the Beaches Children's Home. A staff member had reported concerns about girls being seen emerging from the room of Mr Bloxham, the deputy. The girls were in distress. In distress. Bloxham had admitted sexual offences against five girls. He resigned, and he took his own life before the court appearance. Andrew Kirkwood commented that there had been no support for the staff in the home or for the abused girls. Brian Davis worked at Woodlands Observatory and Assessment Centre for five years. In July 1980, he was convicted of gross indecency and indecent assault of boys aged between 13 and 15 at Woodlands and on camping holidays. He was jailed for a year. The boys that he assaulted were of very low intelligence. Peter Blastock was a residential care worker for Leicestershire County Council and a scout leader. He was convicted of gross indecency with a boy of 13. He approached boys in Abbey Park, Leicester. He was placed on probation for two years and asked to go psychiatric treatment which left, and then he left the council's employ. Other children's home staff were disciplined during the 1980s for sexual and violent offences. These included complaints about a Mr Pay in 1982 a Mr Gaston in 1983 and a Mr Dixon in 1986. There were allegations of falsification of paperwork at Children's Home after the, the time of Frank Beck in many individual case studies that were not reported. The Kids for Cash UK is a charity that works with survivors of child sexual abuse. There are very many unrecorded cases of abuse according to them. They said, consider this example that happened after Frank Beck in the Leicester area. This concerned a survivor of child sex abuse who was in care of local authority in the mid-90s in Leicester. She has now confirmed via documentary evidence that as a nine-year-old, she was regularly taken at weekends and school holidays to a bedsit within close proximity of a well-known Leicester hotspot near Conduit Street and the Victoria Park Toilets, both areas notorious for abuse of children. Here, the girl was abused by up to five males. Two of the five have since been successfully prosecuted. A number of social workers or documentary evidences have falsified the child's care records to avoid any reference to the bedsit address. At least two senior social workers were evidenced as having ignored a court care order in having falsified criminal allegations in an attempt to neutralise the victim's allegations. At least one of these social workers had direct links to the convicted paedophile Frank Beck. This victim's case illustrates the sexual abuse of children in care, 
facilitated by social workers that continued unabated long after the Beck case and long after Beck had died in the Leicester area. A Scotland Yard investigation called Oper- Operation Utree on historic sexual abuse was to change the way in which such cases were viewed and as a result would jam up the court system with historic sex cases. One of my early podcasts examined one case in Hove Crown Court. The defendants in the Hove Crown Court case were oblivious that they'd done anything wrong. It seemed to them a way of life. They'd been abused when they were young and they were just doing the same thing. From the outset, the strange thing about the suspects named by Utree was that the suspects were often family-friendly showbiz types. Operation Utree was in response to the allegations made after the death of showbiz star Jimmy Savile, who despite being interviewed under the caution by police in allegations of sexual abuse going back to 1963, had never been charged with sexual abuse crimes that he seemed now certainly guilty of. Operation Utree began investigating the Elm Guest House, a gay sauna in Barnes, West London, where boys were believed to have been abused by a network of powerful men in the 70s and 80s, including the politician Cyril Smith and the Tory Sir Peter Morrison. Janna's name was mentioned in the inquiries into those that attended Elm House. Police were attempting to establish why a dossier on the, on the, uh, the alleged establishment paedophile ring, then handed to the Home Secretary Liam Britton by Tory backbencher Geoffrey Dickens in 1984, was later mislaid by officials. Against his backdrop, Janna's name, or Janna's alleged Paul Winston, renewed contact with the police. They decided, or the police decided once more to look into the affair, this time in detail. Paul Winston was interviewed by the police and was considered a credible witness, able to provide a police with information about Janna's home, hotel rooms, life, habits and personal verifiable detail. It was the same time that Mick Creedon, the Chief Constable of Derby Police, told the Times newspapers that the investigations into Janna had been blocked by senior officers. It was also at this time that documents produced by the concerned Leicester parents were given to Folds. Regarding the allegations that... I beg your pardon, that was um, at the time that the documents in the Folds archive came to the police's attention was what I meant to say. Folds received the, uh, the documents before he died. Regarding the allegations, Janna had only ever comment- commented twice on them. Firstly, Janna had attended a two-hour interview at Leicester Police Station in the company of a solicitor, David Napley, in the early 1990s, during which he answered no comment to every substantial question put to him. Napley, by the way, worked for several prominent figures caught up in sex scandals. They included a former leader of the Liberal Party, Jeremy Thorpe, the Conservative MP Harvey Proctor, the diplomat Sir Peter Heyman, uh, who was a member of the Paedophile Information Exchange, a 1970s lobby group dedicated to legalising sex with children. The second time Janna spoke of the claims was in the House of Commons after the Frank Beck trial, when he received the total support of the House and was not questioned in any way after putting forward his, uh, his view of, of the story. The police raided Janna's home on December the 20th, 2013 in Golders Green, North London. They carried out a warrant to search the premises as a part of the high-profile paedophile probe. 
In June 2014, police searched Jana's Westminster offices, removing computers and other files. This was part of an Operation Enamel, an investigation into historic abuse claims linked to the Leicestershire children's homes during the 1970s and 80s. The police were informed that Jana was suffering from severe dementia. Jana's supporters claimed that Jana, a vehement supporter of Israel, had been subjected to virulent anti-Semitic attempt, attacks over the years, including from the MP Folds, who supported the Palestinian cause. And people had been seeking to smear Jana for a long time for his pro-Jewish stance. An independent inquiry into the child's sexual abuse, the IICSI, was set up by Theresa May, the Home Secretary, on the 7th of July 2014. This was to investigate how well government-funded bodies had protected children from sexual abuse. This again was a result of the fallout after the Jimmy Savile sexual abuse scandal, which caused a torrent of uh, historical sexual abuse claims against prominent media and political figures, often taking place in publicly funded buildings. There was much argument over its organisation and its scope, and its independence from those being investigated. The first two chairpeople of the IICSA were forced to stand down when appointed due to links with those suspected of paedophilic behaviour. Uh, Eventually the person chosen as chair was a New Zealand High Court judge, but she resigned as she did not think the inquiry was going to achieve anything after a few months. Other groups helping the inquiry withdrew, saying the investigation was not fit for purpose. The inquiry was beset with operational and staffing problems. The IICSA was rejigged again and it was decided there would be 12 investigations into certain areas. These were called strands. Later in January 2016, a 13th investigation was announced, this being the investigation into Jana, who had just died so that no trial could take place. After this, other investigations, or strands, were announced. The Janner investigation was to be headed by the barrister Edward Brown and said it would not let down its victims or survivors. Brown conceded that Westminster investigations took place in a highly charged media environment and are often seen as evidence of a paedophile conspiracy or evidence of a modern-day witch hunt. It was the role of this inquiry to concentrate on objective facts. The inquiry reported that it was alleged that Janna committed the offences between 1955 to 1988 and the number of people who had come forward to say that they had been abused by Janna was more than 30 people. It was also revealed that Janna gave evidence to the Kirkwood inquiry in private. The final Kirkwood report had not referred to the testimony that he had given in private. Much of the proceedings available are heavily redacted and the inquiry seems to move at a very slow pace. I've read what was available online, and but the reports are incredibly boring. In July 2018, the Carl Beach scandal broke. It was his accusations that had fueled the Operation Midland Police investigation. Beach was convicted of falsely accusing innocent people of sexual abuse and murder. Daniel Janney gave a statement as Beach was being sentenced, and said of his father... He died an innocent man. He was a force for good and justice. Beach was jailed for 18 years. There were comments made after the Beach uh, trial that it was a set-up in order to discredit claims that people had made regarding the existence of a paedophile network. What a better smokescreen for such a network than to encourage a fantasist such as Carl Beach 
to invent the Westminster VIP paedophile ring and fan the flames of false allegations, which would reflect badly on all such claims. Newspaper reports argue that the Newcastle Crown Court heard how Beach's false accusations had ruined the lives and reputations of those that he falsely accused, including the former Prime Minister, Edward Heath, Lord Britton, the former Home Secretary, the retired head of the Armed Forces, Lord Bramall, and a former Labour MP, Lord Janner. They were implying that one fantasist, who was an abuser himself, had absolved all the allegations of those that had uh, been mentioned by Beach. The Carl Beach trial was a show trial, and his heavy sentence of 18 years was designed to prevent others from making similar claims. If there was a Westminster paedophile network, things couldn't have turned out better. The trial would have put off others from making claims, and it would encourage the view that Britain's scandal of the VIP paedophiles was nonsense. It should have been obvious to the police and the BBC that Beach's allegations had no credibility. And it was pretty obvious that Beach had cobbled together his accusations by using the internet. Before the trial had begun in March 2018, the Metropolitan's police operation Midland had realised that his allegations were ludicrous. For example, Beach had claimed that Edward Heath, the former Conservative Prime Minister, had stopped Harvey Proctor, an ex-MP from the same political party, using a penknife to cut off his genitals. Just why the Metropolitan Police were taken in was not clear. Carl Beach had tried to tell a similar story to the Wiltshire Police, but they had seen through him as a fantasist and ignored his claims. Detectives at Scotland Yard, such as Superintendent Kenny MacDonald, declared the account given by Beach as credible and true. They realised that they had been fooled, and he retired just ahead of the trial so he would not have to appear. The initial belief in the allegations of Beach was an issue that everybody was desperate not to have to answer to. It is difficult not to believe that the Beach's the Beach trial had been stage-managed to discredit those making sexual abuse allegations against powerful people. After the Beach trial, even supporters of Jimmy Savile wanted to believe that the conviction of Carl Beach threw doubts upon the idea that Savile was a prolific paedophile and he could have been a victim of hundreds of false accusers. After all, Savile had never been charged or found guilty of anything. Daniel Janner, the barrister's son of Greville, Greville Janner, gave an impact statement at the trial of Carl Beach. He said that the allegations of Beach and other false accusers against his father made him feel physically sick and distressed. But as he whined his attack from Beach to the many other false accusers of his father, a lot of, a lot of by the way, turned out to have criminal records, he said, the judge had to intervene to remind him that he should limit his comments to the one man that was in the dock, Carl Beach, not all the other accusers. Indeed, the Beach trial caused Janna to continue to lash out at those who'd claimed his father was a paedophile, and he argued that such people created a moral panic. Janna's daughter, Rabbi Janna Klansner, argued that we have a system whereby people are believed instantly, before the evidence is examined, instead of being listened to compassionately and the allegations properly investigated. People were able to accuse my father without a shred of evidence and were believed straight away. Not a shred of evidence. Clearly the Janna family are not being very objective, as there was plenty of evidence and it had been brushed aside in an attempt to cover it all up. In 2019, Daniel Janna founded the group Falsely Accused Individuals for Reform, 
this was known as FAIR, which aimed to prevent the names of people accused of sexual offences being made public until they are charged. In my opinion, the Carl Beach case was used as an excuse by paedophiles to cast doubt on their activities. It could be argued that the case of Carl Beach had been set up to deflect attention and blame and to cause doubt. It seems extraordinary that the police and the BBC who ran the Carl Beach story as a headline, BBC, on the BBC News, were taken in so easily, almost as if it had been planned. It certainly would not have persuaded any victims of sexual abuse to come forward with their story. Anyhow, the IICSA inquiry lumbered on painfully slowly. It was reported in February 2019 that many more cases of abuse than it had been thought of sexual and physical had taken place on children in custody and young offenders of facilities, secure training centres and secure children's homes. It seemed that the inquiry was being, <coughs> was being snow, snowballed by so many different claims. Most claims were made against staff members. In November 2020, the IICSA published a strand of the report saying that the Catholic Church had hidden allegations of sexual abuse, there had been no acknowledgement of personal responsibility, and the Church was just trying to protect its own reputation rather than helping, helping the victims. So a withering report against the Catholic Church seemed to indicate that the strand of inquiry investigating the Church was not intimidated by the Church. So this boded well for the future. I think that the common sense view on sexual abuse in children's homes was stated by Norman Tebbit, the former Tory minister, who said that he thought that there was a political cover-up over child abuse in the 1980s, as politicians' instincts were to protect the system, which I take to mean to protect the establishment. He said this on the Andrew Marr political TV programme. Tebbit thought that it was almost unconscious it's what politicians would have done in the 1980s. They wouldn't have wanted to delve too deeply into uncomfortable allegations. Tibbet argued this was probably what happened when Geoffrey Dickens handed a file, including a listing MPs and paedophile activity regarding the Westminster paedophile ring to Liam Britton when he was Home Secretary. Dickens, who died in 1995, told his family that the information he handed to the Home Secretary in 1983 and 1984, would blow the lid off the lives of the powerful and famous child abusers, including eight well-known figures. In a letter to Dickens at the time, Britain suggested this information would be passed to the police, but Scotland Yard said it had no record of the investigation into the allegations. The file was never seen again. Lynn Britton was suspected of paedophile activity and the rape of a young woman. A file on a politician that's handed to another politician, then handed to someone else and subsequently goes missing, never to be seen again. Then both politicians subsequently die. Investigations undertaken in the 90s, which were now told, resulted in the uncovering of sufficient evidence to bring charges against Janna, but no charges were brought. We are told another investigation into Janna uncovers sufficient evidence to bring charges, but again no charges are brought, as a politician in question is too ill to stand trial. The whole debacle just goes to show that the Judiciary, Police, Special Branch, Security Services and Parliament seem to be covering up. The Kinkora, home, uh, the Kinkora Boys' Home scandal was possibly a similar situation to the Janet case. The Kinkora Boys' Home scandal referred to a boys' home in Northern Ireland, 
which was the site of an organised paedophile network and attempted cover-up by the security services in 1980 when the home was closed. An inquiry judged that there was no network and the abuse committed there was limited to staff working at the time. The UK security services had not cooperated or handed over documentation or attended the hearings. They just ignored it. Paedophiles who had preyed on teenage boys at the home had been spies for MI5. Other paedophiles who had visited the home were members of the civil service and senior officers in the army. Two other inquiries were set up by the Northern Ireland Secretary, both, but both failed due to no, no cooperation by those asked to investigate. There were strong rumours that the paedophile ring were Ulster loyalists being blackmailed by MI5, who were protecting their sources of information. The IICSA are at present preparing a report on child abuse, but the UK government are anxious to keep Kinkora case out of the process, although authorities insist that MI5 and the UK government had any role in covering up sexual abuse claims. But many people do not believe this to be the truth, and they believe there was a cover-up at Kinkora 40 years ago. Those that informed on child abuse at Kinkora were targeted by the security services. Whistleblowers were targeted by MI5 and Special Branch, who removed any evidence and got witnesses to sign D-notices, making people not tell what they knew on the grounds of national security, and getting the Crown Prosecution Services to shut down cases and to try to get the MPs to change the law. The Kinkora case showed what would happen to whistleblowers. You got hounded out of your work, your phone and emails got hacked, your blog posts will be tampered with, or even worse. Colin Wilson was a soldier who said that he received intelligence in 1973 that boys at Kinkora were being abused. Wallace realised that his senior officers were not passing information on, and Wallace complained, and would not stop talking about abuse at the home. In 1980, Wallace was convicted of the manslaughter of the husband of one of his work colleagues. The conviction was quashed in 1996 after new forensic evidence was available, uh, which was not available at the time. During the appeal case hearing, a Home Office pathologist, Dr Ian West, admitted that some of the evidence that had been used at the Wallace trial had been supplied to him by an American security source. The journalist Paul Foote, in his book, who framed Colin Wallace, suggested that Wallace may have been framed for the killing, possibly by renegade members of the British Security Services, in a bid to discredit his allegations that members of the intelligence community had attempted to rig the 1974 general election in which, general, in which Harold Wilson came to power with a minority government. I've done a podcast on this if you'd like to hear the coup against Harold Wilson. The implication here is that security services murdered the husband of the woman that Wallace was having an affair with in order to shut him up. The security services have men who are ruthless. They've got no conscience whatsoever. They'll happily try and get your child abused or try to convict you as an abuser in order to ensure that the real abusers are protected and allowed to carry on as normal as long as it protects their sources. An interesting link between the Kinkora Boys' Home and the attempt to overthrow the Wilson government in the 1970s being Lord Mountbatten. Lord Mountbatten was accused of having homosexual orgies with boys invited from the Kinkora home, and he was also asked to be a puppet leader of the emergency government after the right-wing coup attempted to get rid of Wilson. Well, 
I've just been reading the Independent Inquiry of Child Sexual Abuse, that's the IICSA uh, report, linked to Westminster, and it seems there is so much more, so many allegations. I did a couple of podcasts on child sexual abuse a couple of years ago. I was going to make three podcasts at the time, but I ran out of enthusiasm after two and could not bring myself to complete the third. I never actually listened to the podcast that I broadcast, so I'm not sure what they were about although that I got my inspiration by uh, the book Playland. The IICSA report on JANA still has not been published. They stopped their secret secret public hearings in December 2020, and they say that they will publish their final report in 2022. It'll be interesting to see what they say about Lord JANA, 67 years after his earliest allegation, Well, sorry, rather a long podcast. Maybe I should have split it in two. But if I'm listening to a story, I don't like to have to wait to the next instalment. So that's the reason I've done it in one. So I'd like to thank you all for listening. And thanks to Damselfly for the background music. Until next time, I'll say goodbye. Goodbye and thank you.